So I got a lot of moving parts this morning, uh, and there's some stuff that I really want to get to, but I got Gaylord Salters uh, in the waiting room. He's going to come on, and, he's, and I'm doing this a little early. To, I'm talking to guests early today because I have a guest now, and then I have a guest at 10.15, and then I got some other stuff that I want to talk about, but Gaylord Salters is coming on because there's a rally uh, downtown in Superior Court for uh, wrongful uh, convictions and uh, judicial misconduct but they're having a rally over the next couple of days to bring awareness to this and so he's out there getting set up and he's squeezing me in now if you want to know more about Gaylord Salters he's a New Havener um he had a conversation with Paul Bass uh, I think fr Thursday or Friday last week so it's still floating up on the internet so if you go to the WNHH page or the New Haven Independent page uh you'll see his conversation with Paul Bass so let me see if he is uh, I wasn't expecting him until 9.20, but 9 o'clock works for me, too, so that we can... Uh, uh, it, listen, welcome to Love, Babs, Love, Talk, where we do all the talking and all the loving that we could possibly do in the morning. So, anyway, he's connecting to audio, and uh, he's going to be with me briefly just to talk about the rally, the importance of the rally, uh, and what they're, you know, and just in his own voice, what the rally is for and about. Good morning, Gaylord. How are you feeling this morning? <laughs> I'm feeling good. How are you doing? I'm feeling all right. I'm feeling all right. So, so this is you're having a rally for the next how many days? Seven days. Oh, the it's day that being long. The first. Okay. Yes, yes. And it's downtown New Haven at the court, Superior Court. Downtown New Haven, one fifty-seven Church Street, which is the Department of Justice. Oh, okay. And so, what is the rally for? The rally is to bring attention to an era of official misconduct, systematic official misconduct in New Haven between the New Haven State's Attorney's Office and Police Department, which is responsible for manufacturing over 1,000 years of wrongful convictions of innocent black men. And what we're doing here is showing how that era, late 80s, 90s, in early 2000s, that era of corruption is directly related to continuing wrongful convictions outside of the individuals who were exonerated or had their sentences eliminated. And that would be with respect to those 1,000 years. This is crazy, it's, it's going on. I have uh, Jason Flom calling me right now and I have to call him back, but he, he's huge in wrongful conviction. You Google his name, he's supporting us. 
He's supporting us. So now this is personal to you because... This is special to me because I spent 20 years wrongfully convicted. And my case is currently before the Conviction Integrity Review Unit. And I am waiting for them to issue a decision, but they've had a lot of controversy surrounding them as well. So I'm not holding my hat on this. This is this is this is serious. It's it's, it's so serious right now with Jason Flom calling right now. I'm so tempted to answer, but I can't. But I'll tell you this. What further pulls me into this is that my mother had to watch two of her children be wrongfully convicted by the same corrupt prosecutor. And we'll, we will be emphasizing that information today. Mm -hmm. I mean, throughout the, the today, it starts off with the deceptive practices of the New Haven Police Department and police departments all across the country that they use this. But in particular, they use this and they put this 16-year-old child in prison. And that's how old you were when you went? Were you 16? No, I'm just talking about how we're opening up today. Bobby Johnson. That was Bobby Johnson oh, okay. who was wrong. Okay. Okay. So this is a problem, and you are looking to get people's attention so that it can be remedied? Absolutely, because you have people who are living through continuing wrongful convictions as a result of the same police and detectives who induced the wrongful convictions that were reversed those thousand years that I spoke of previously. And while we have the information showing how these individuals are living through continuing wrongful convictions, we will be sharing that information. So, so Gaylord, you were wrongfully convicted. You served 20 years. So does, do, does this automatically go off your record? Like, what do you have, what do you have to do to sort of uh, make this right? How do they make this right for you? Do they make this right for you? They do make, they, they, they do, they can and they should. But what it is, is my case is really, really problematic because to tell the truth, it's going to open a can of worms with respect to this one prosecutor who has seven people on the National Registry of Exoneration and many people wow. who are in, yeah, yeah, seven people. And then many people who are in prison right now with the same allegations leveled against him. And the thing is, those allegations were there way before all of these cases started to be reversed. So if you um, go through my Facebook, Gaylord Saucers, but you're gonna see it downtown throughout these seven days. You're gonna see a documentary that I produced from prison talking about this crisis and talking about how, you know, people are living through continuing wrongful convictions as a result of this crisis. The crisis is ongoing. Many people will have you think that they dealt with it, but that's not the truth. So the so what time does the rally protest start today? What time does it start every day? 11 a.m. every day to 3 p.m. 157 Church Street in front of the Department of Justice for the first five days, that's June 12th to June 16th. The last two days will be in front of the New Haven Police Department. That's June 17th and June 18th. And so what can, people what can people expect to hear when they get to the rally protest, Gaylord? Like, you're gonna have people speaking? Are you gonna have, like, how, what's, the, what's the structure? You, you can expect to see presentations 
from individuals, from different organizations like the Jeffrey, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation. Jeffrey Deskovic will be giving a presentation today, opening, because he was wrongfully convicted. He was a youth, and he was lied to by police, and they forced him to falsely confess on himself. And this is the same thing that happened to two of our exonerees from New Haven, and we're making the correlation. So... So, so we're and all you, aware of the um, the most famous one of the most famous wrongfully convicted uh, is the uh, Central Park Five, which now they don't call themselves the Central Park Five anymore. They call themselves the Exonerated Five, or or yeah. or something to that. And, and so, and I think really, uh, Gaylord, that's probably one of the earliest times that people had a sense that this was even happening. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And. and, and you know how egregious that was because those police officers pulled those children in there. They tricked uh, Corey Wise. I don't even think Corey Wise had his guardian in there at the time when they did that with him, whereas some of them had the guardians, and their guardians weren't equipped to deal with what was going on with the police. Those deceptive practices, they could lie legally. And that's how those young boys got put into that situation because they're young children and all they needed to say was something in order for the police to arrest them. And when they did say that, they thought that they were going home. They thought that that was their key. And that's what happens with deceptive practices and, and police being able to lie in interrogation rooms. But I wanted to uh, expound on your question when you asked what else to expect, because this Wednesday, you can expect that Kalayla Ali, it, it's so bad. Kalayla Ali made, I, I, I have to get, I, I don't want to cut our interview short, obviously, but I have to get to work because yes. the call that I had just had to miss was the connection to Kalayla Ali. You know Muhammad Ali was a freedom fighter. He fought for justice. His daughter is no different, and she's coming to the Elm City to talk about her work and to talk about this crisis that we have here. So you can expect to see Kalila Ali. I just have to make sure that I, I, I get the timing right because there's so many people. You have Yale University's Racial Justice Center. You have the NAACP, the ACLU, who will be giving a presentation tomorrow on prosecutor accountability. And, you know, it's just a bunch of criminal justice reform advocates coming to New Haven to address this crisis that many knew existed, but it never came to the surface. And now that I'm home, I, I, I organized protests from in there. I actually um, produced a, doc, a five minute documentary from inside about this crisis. So you can expect to get all of that. You can expect to get all of that. Well, thank you. I, I so appreciate you taking the time out to jump on here with me this morning. And I, I want to make sure I do my part to help get people out there to, to, to participate. So thank you so much, Gaylord. And, uh, and I know I will see you again and we will talk some more. Thank you so much. All right, so, so Gaylord is going to jump off because he's got to go coordinate this whole week-long protest rally. And uh, I'm gonna let him go. So your your camera is frozen, but I know that you have to go. So so feel free to jump off, Gaylord. It's all right. And uh, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you greatly. And if y'all want to know, hear more of uh, uh, Gaylord Salter's story, he was in conversation with Paul Bass last week. So it's up on social media. So you can um, you can uh, 
you can go and listen to the entire conversation that he had with Paul Bass in studio. So uh, I just wanted to have him for a few minutes this morning to just talk about this rally, uh, a week-long rally, um, um, protesting um, wrongful convictions, prosecutorial misconduct, um, um, just all kinds of things. Uh, And so uh, I appreciate it. So so if you're downtown at 11 o'clock today from 11 to 3, uh, go and stand in solidarity with folks. Every day. So you got every day. Pick a day or go every day or whatever, but do it. So so thank you, Gaylord. So anyway, welcome to Love Babs Love Talk. <laughs> 1015, I've got um Joan Duffy coming on. She is doing the Monday talk at the Beinecke, and it's a it's a um it's a virtual com- a virtual talk on uh on uh Marianne, God, what is her name? The sister, the the black woman who uh, left uh, money uh, to uh, Yale Divinity School for Black men to to uh, get an education. So she's going to come on and talk about that little known Black history fact. Um, uh, and I'm I'm delighted to have her on. And you can tune in at the Beinecke uh, virtually. Uh, just go to their website; it's up there, and uh, uh, and it'll tell you. So anyway, had a great weekend. It's Monday. Happy Monday. Starting off with a with a with a, a whirlwind of stuff. So let me tell you something. I, I, we had a situation yesterday, but let me let me let me give you the rundown on the weekend because you know I like to do that, uh, and I, I I I like to start. So Saturday was on the green for arts and ideas. Angelique Joe did not disappoint. It was wonderful. The people came out. It was a beautiful day. The music was great. She was with the New Haven Symphony Orchestra. She was sublime. I don't know anybody who, who was a singer who wouldn't want to sing with a full live orchestra behind them. But she she was amazing. Uh, she brought a little soul, a little African soul to that symphony. So that was that was wonderful. Uh, so yesterday, that and that was that was that was uh, that was Saturday. That was Saturday. I did that, which was nice. So that was Saturday. Arts and Ideas kicked off. It was great. Beautiful day. Uh, Sunday, I blew up a couple of things. And let me tell you, let me tell you how God can work and move us around in the world if we are open to it. So Sunday, I was supposed to be at the Long War Theater Film Festival, but I didn't do that. And I was supposed to be at a a garden party uh, by a board member from Common Ground. I didn't do that either. So I blew up two two events. What I did do was uh, hung out with my girlfriend, Ife, took her to... uh, Shell and Bones for a wonderful extravagant brunch, which is nice, right? Because you just, you know, she does so many good things for me. I wanted to do some good stuff for her. So we went to brunch. We saw folks we knew. We saw Alan Bowie. We saw uh, Nico and Malik and uh, <laughs> Baby Nile, uh, Malik's sister, and uh, and uh, um, uh, Nico's mom, who was in town. So it, it it felt like a little bit of a, a little home home reunion kind of vibe. And then uh, I saw Kia Levy, my my Sora Burden. And then I saw the talented and the beautiful Mercy Quay. So they were connecting. So it was just like, it was black on block. <laughs> so so we hung out there. We had brunch. It was great. It was beautiful. Sitting out there on the water. 
having wonderful food and drink and you know we was just popping bottles like we was rock stars it was not it felt nice to be just chilling chilling and then you know we finished we sat at the bar with alan a little bit chatted him up a little bit you know love seeing these young these young sisters and brothers coming up doing their thing with the plan and the whole nine then we like all right well we got we know it's, it's it's early in the day i'm not i'm not gonna get over it's like three four o'clock in the afternoon I'm not gonna make it over to any of the events that I was scheduled to go to. So we go sit on the porch, we pick up some rosé, we go sit on the porch, we chill, we hang it. You know, we sitting on the porch like we do because the weather was fine. Smoking cigars, chatting it up. And then we see, I'm sitting here on my porch and you know, I notice everything because when you sit on the porch, it's a bird's eye view, particularly the way my porch is set up. It's back off off the street and it's up a little high. So I could look out and I could see what's happening on the street. So there's a big giant bush in front of my house, but that's fine. I kind of like the bush there. Um, this little girl walks by and I, I can tell she's, she's something's wrong. So, you know, I sit on the porch, I speak to all the children. <laughs> hey baby, you all right? And she stops and then she starts crying. I was like, oh. So Ife gets up and goes down the stairs. And, and as she's going down the stairs, I'm like, well, what's the matter? She says, I'm lost. So I'm thinking, now, you know, I'm thinking a little black kid in Newhallville, how are you going to be lost? Ain't this your hood? No, she is lost. So we go and we see about the child. She's 11, a beautiful child, shorts, tank top, whole thing. She has her phone in her hand. So I said, well, can you call somebody to tell them, you know, the address, then come get you? Her phone was dead, like dead, dead, dead. Bring her up on the porch. We sit her down, get her a glass of water. I take her phone. I charge her phone a little bit. And we trying to extract the story of what has happened, you know, because she's crying. I'm like, what the hell? I don't understand 11-year-old. She don't know her mama's phone number. She don't know her father's phone number. Her sister, she got a 15-year-old sister who was up visiting from down south somewhere, who her father put her put in charge of her. This is where the story gets crazy. The mother is out of town somewhere, on her way back into town. The little girl has no idea where her mother went. She said, my mama packed her bag and, and went away on vacation. I said, well, do you know where she is? No. I said, she didn't tell you? <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know who was raising kids these days, but they're not doing a damn good job. I will say this, a kid that don't know, all my kids knew my husband and my phone number by heart because we never want them to be out there vulnerable. I, this is my first judgment. I'm making judgments here. This is my first judgment. We find out where the little girl goes to school. Ife gets on the phone and calls her contact to that school. I'm not gonna say the school because I don't want to put the little girl out there just because people will figure it out. She calls her friend connected to the school. We didn't hear back. I don't know if we heard back or whatever. Uh, but this time it's starting to get later and later, right? So we're like, okay, child, um, charging up her phone because the phone was dead, dead. So, uh, so my first judgment is she don't know nobody's phone number by heart. All the numbers that she knows is in her phone. 
she don't know where she's going. She was just walking down the street because her sister, her 15 year old sister left her. You know, they started walking fast and ran off somewhere and left her. She didn't know what to do. So she just started walking by herself. Now that's not unheard of or unusual. If you know where you are and this is your neighborhood, this ain't her neighborhood. She lived way across town in Fairhaven. But she don't, but nobody was home at her house because I would have took the kid home. Nobody is there. Because her mama out of town and she was passed by her father to stay with her sister. So she's crying, we give her some water, she's sitting there, we wrap her in a little blanket because it's now starting to get evening, starting to get a little cool. She got a little short tank top thing. And my first judgment is this child don't know nobody's phone number by heart, nobody. Not enough parents to give a kid a cell phone. You gotta help them memorize the damn numbers. So that's my first judgment. My second judgment is the phone gets charged up and starts blinging and ringing and all this stuff. We give it to the child. He face sits with the child, starts talking. The mother calls. Where are you? That kind of mess. So she don't know where she is. So Ife gets on the phone and says, hey, she was wandering the streets. We saw her. She's safe. We good people. She's sitting on the porch. You know, we'll, 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 you know, what do you want to do? I'm on my way. I'm in Westport. Okay. That's number two. So I was like, okay, bring some idea, something so we know who you are. Number three, the father calls or calls or something. The little girl talks to the mother. She talks, she takes a call from the father. He on his way. He, he is in New Hallville somewhere in his car. He pulls up like an asshole, right? He pulls up like an asshole. He pulls up and, uh, and the, mother, the mother says, uh, I don't want him going with her. I don't, I don't want her going with him. I'm on my way. So the father's like, I'm the father. I'm the father. He's just pulled up. He's here. She's still insisting, no, uh, I'm on my way. I'm in Westport. I was like, well, the father right here in front of my house. So I said, listen, he face tells her, listen, you need to call him and talk to him. Call him. So she calls him and he, they're on the phone together while he's standing at the foot of my porch. And, uh, and then he snaps at me, he's, I said, sir, I, I don't know who you are. I'm her father, come on. Hey, 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 the mother said she's on her way. Oh, because she the mother, I, I'm not a, I'm in this child's life, I'm the father and hey, hey, bruh. I, I don't know what your situation is. I'm just telling you what the mother said. Oh, you siding with the mother? No, no. I'm siding with the child here, sir. I'm with the child. Uh, well, I'm the father. I'm here a lot. Then he catches himself and he's like, you know what? Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. But he was still a little salty. Then he commences to yell at the child. Why did you run off? And she was like, I didn't run off. They left me. 
oh, that girl's going back down south. Uh-uh, I'm not having <laughs> Not, hey, are you okay? Hey, this must have been very traumatizing or traumatic for you to be in a neighborhood that you don't know, depending on strangers. Because let me tell you something, parents, these two knucklehead parents, and they're both, and I hope, I hope that somebody was listening to me says this enough in the neighborhood and communities so that those, it gets back to those two knucklehead parents, the mama and the daddy, for raising children who don't know how to survive on these streets. You got a daughter, 11-year-old, this could have went all kinds of ways wrong. This child was walking down Ivy Street and the next street, guess what, is Shelton. And after that is Dixville. And she didn't know where she was going. If somebody would have pulled up on her and said, where are you going? And seemingly would have wanted to help her. And I'm not suggesting that everybody she would have met would have done her harm, but there was a good chance that there are people out there who would do this child harm. I was so annoyed with both these parents. It was ridiculous. One, this child don't know nothing about nothing. She don't know no phone numbers. She don't even know. She knows she live on, on her street. 11, she didn't know ID, nothing. And I don't suggest children should have ID, but he hadn't, she didn't even have a little, you know, most little girls have a little bag or something. She didn't have nothing. She just walking the streets crying. My heart just, I, it just scared. I'm still shaken by it. I'm still like, oh, what if I wasn't on that porch last night? Like she would have just been walking down the street crying. And I, I have to believe that somebody else would have intervened too. Somebody else would have been like, listen, let me, let me, let me help you. Let me charge your phone. Let me figure this out. Because her phone was dead, dead. You know how your phone is dead, dead? Like you got to let it sit a minute to charge it up. It was dead. And her father comes. He's like, you just going to side with the I can't, the language I want to use, I can't use on air, FCC. I wanted to say, let me tell you something. Because by right, Ife and I should have called the police. But we went into mommy mode thinking, how can we rectify this situation in the easiest possible way? So we did what mothers do. We take care. That's what we did. Now, we could have easily just called the police and let the police handle it. And he would have had a different conversation with the police. And I dare say that father wouldn't have jumped bad with the police. I, I, I don't think that would have went down like that. And then guess what happens when children are placed in the custody of police? You know, they're going to have to make a phone call. And the phone call is going to have to be the DCF, right? See, look, see, you see how this could be, become a problem? It could become a problem. So then DCF is going to have to open the case, right? And then they, their lives are going to be run through. They're going to have to prove all kinds of stuff. They're going to have to answer questions that they may not want to answer. We did them a huge favor. But they didn't see it that way. They didn't see the knucklehead parents. And I'm not suggesting they don't care about their kids. That's not, that's not, that's not the point of my rant and conversation around this. That's not the point. The point is they're poor ass parents who didn't do a good job 
of training that child to understand. And I know they put her in the care of her sister who is 15, which is a good age for somebody to be watching another kid, you know. That just, this just could have went wrong so many directions. It's just, yes, you know that is why you moved there for this one situation that couldn't be foreseen. You're right, Harry, because all I kept thinking in my mind was, what if she was walking down the street crying, crying, and she was trying to hold it together, but it was starting to get dark starting to get dark. I'm like, I win. and her phone is dead. Like, what are you going to do? I, you know, all I could think is maybe the, maybe some well-meaning people would have intervened, some kind mother or some kind, somebody, somebody would have been kind. But we also know there are people out here who are not good to young girls. Not. And, and, so whatever I blew off yesterday, I was supposed to blow off yesterday. For whatever I wasn't supposed to be yesterday, was supposed to be, I wasn't supposed to be yesterday. That's just it. That's the divinity right there. That I was supposed to be on the porch of my dear friend, Ife, and we just did this. We were just there. We were just on the porch when this child showed up and needed us. That this child needed us, you know, because honestly, we need, it didn't even occur to me to call the police. It just occurred to me to charge her phone and get her back to her people. But if I would have called the police, it would have been a different kind of vibe. And that probably would have scared her more, you know. And then her phone probably would have, you know, I, her phone would have charged, and then the cops would have been talking to both her parents. And maybe the cops could have done right the same thing we did, wait for the parents to show up and turn her over. Or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe they have to make a call to DCF. I don't know. I mean, so many variables to this thing, you know. And the father shows up and he's like a, a he's like he's an asshole, trying not to be an asshole, but he was. You know, going to snap at me, talking about, oh, you just gonna side with motherfucker, I don't know you. Excuse me. <laughs> I don't know you. Yeah, she knows you as her father, but I don't know you. How, we listening to the mother. The mother said, hey, I'm on my way. I'm in Westport. I was like, that's another 45 minutes, girl. Like, okay. But the father pulled up. Then he, then, you know, he commences to yell at her. And I know, and I, and, I, and I will say this about his yelling at her. He probably was afraid. He probably was afraid and, 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 and that was the reaction to being afraid because he already knew this could have gone all kinds of ways wrong and it scared him. And he didn't know how to, he didn't know how to connect to his real feelings about this. So he acts out in a, in a way because he felt very helpless. And, 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 and the other part of that is it was on his watch. <laughs> you, you were entrusted to the care of this child. And you passed her off to her sister because you wanted to go do whatever it is you was doing, bruh. Whatever. Whatever. So I know. I get it. This is, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, 
So my, 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 my judgment to the knucklehead parents is harsh, but I understand his reaction because, you know, he was, he, it scared him because this is on his watch. He was entrusted to the care of his child and he fell down on the job. He trusted this, his other daughter to, to do right. And she ain't do right because she's 15. She's 15 and she's cute, probably. And she's with her friends that she ain't seen in a minute. She's back up here from down south. So she's just being 15. So I'm sure everybody's, I'm sure last night, everybody was on fire <laughs> at the house. I don't know what the situation is. I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the daughter got a different mama because that's why she down south because her, her people's is down south. So she up here spending time with her father, right? Because school is out down south, right? So she up here spending time with her father, getting to know her sister. You know, you know how we do extended family. We, you know, I, I listen, I, I, can, I can, I see all the scenarios. I see it. He pulls up, he was, he was pretty mad. I was like, hey, 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 I, bruh, I, I'm just, I, I'm not a nobody side. I'm on the child side. I, we see this kid walking down the street crying. And I, and I was, I saw her. I was looking at her. I was like, oh, this can't be good. I said, hey, baby, what's the matter? She's like, I'm lost. Huh? You know, I wasn't expecting. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, you see a black child in New Orleans. I'm not thinking that she lost. I was like, okay, maybe she's on the street she never been on in the neighborhood. All right, we, 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 well, we got to take you. But she told me, I was like, girl, that's, that ain't in New Orleans. <laughs> I was like, how did you get over here with her sister? And her sister was left there. She was walking and she's tired. And I was like, Lord have mercy. Like, where, where were you? She couldn't tell you nothing. She couldn't tell you where she came from. She just knows she was just walking. Oh boy. Lessons to be learned all the way around. Parents, you got to teach your children early phone numbers. Even if they just know one phone number, you have to get them to commit it to memory. That's what we did with our children early on. And, and you know, honestly, my ex-husband, when, when he bought our, I still have the phone number that he got when we had a joint account. I still have the same number. And we have the same phone number with one number different, you know. So his last digit is just two digits from my digit. So that the children could always remember. If they got all the numbers right, they could pick either one of them. And it would be the number, right? So that's how we set that. We were purposeful because it's for them. And we knew we couldn't. Sometimes they're going to be somewhere and they're going to call us. But we, and then it had, my kids didn't have cell phones because they were teenagers, right? So this little 11-year-old child with a cell phone that was dead, you know, so my kids didn't have cell phones until they was 13 was the age where they got them. So they had to know our numbers so that they could get with another parent and say, could you call my mother? Could you call my father? And they knew the phone number. This little girl didn't know no number, nothing. She didn't know where her mama went, nothing, nothing. She's like, I saw her pack her bags and she was gone. I was like, what, what is happening? What kind of parenting are we doing? That's my second judgment. <laughs> I'm judging. I'm judging you. I'm, you know why I'm judging? I'm judging these knucklehead parents because that child was walking down the street she didn't know 
crying by herself, looking vulnerable and afraid. And for me, that that warrants all kinds of judgment. I don't anybody out there can say whatever. Oh, daddy shouldn't judge, whatever. I'm I'm judging this. Because that's an 11 year old girl, pretty little girl, gorgeous little kid, sweet, scared, tired. I'm like, man, oh man, man, oh man, oh man, oh man, man, oh man. I just hope they didn't they didn't be so mad at her. You know, she's 11. She's 11. She cannot she cannot bear the weight of of ridiculous decisions by grown people. Y'all put her in that situation. She ain't put herself in that situation. She a kid. Kids don't make decisions. Parents, adults make decisions. So y'all put her in that in that put her in that. You want her to what? Be 11 and then think like she's 20? It's not possible. She's 11 and her cell phone was dead. Dead. So where was she going to go? If I was not sitting on that porch and saw this child, who else would have seen her? Who else would have helped her? And I, I like to believe that there are more kind people in the world than not. But I also know that there are a lot of dastardly people in the world who prey on children. And she could have gone missing in the blink of an eye. And we've been in somebody's basement chained up for years and years and years, or harmed or killed or whatever, and found somewhere. Found somewhere. Hey, Harry. Hey, Babs. You hear me? Yes, I hear you. I'm back in the office. Oh, welcome back in the office. How's it feel? Uh, it feels like my leg needs to be up. <laughs> well, then why are you in the office? Don't go back tomorrow. Stay home. And no, no, I, I got to get used to it. I mean. No, you don't have to. You can just wait until it heals. How but, about uh, that? Try that on. <laughs> but yeah, you know, that. You know, I've I've acted like a fool when my child is in danger. Once you know they're not in danger, then you your relief actually causes you to act stupid. I, I get it, Harry. We all have done that. God knows I have I have done it with my own children. Like if you, yeah. man screaming at them you know but it, it makes me think i'm gonna because look my kids were latchkey kids right so my son had the responsibility of taking my daughter from picking up my daughter from the end of school at he was six years old right he would come out of his first grade to go pick up Jennifer from her preschool, get home, disarm the alarm, rearm the alarm. And it was until my mother got home from work, which it was about an hour, hour and 10 minutes. But for that period of time, it was always holding your breath that everything went well. And, um, and my my son, I, I feel to this day, he, you know, he became an, an old man really quickly. You know, he felt the responsibility, the pressure of because we 
you know, we told them, Jennifer's your responsibility. You got to make sure. You know, and I remember one day him coming. Well, when I got home, he sat me down. And he tells me, Daddy, Jennifer went to the playground when she came out of school. She wouldn't listen to me. We're supposed to go home. And it was like, I was like, okay, man, you relax. But he was so like high strung. And he's like six or seven years old. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God. I mean, but we had no other choice at the time. We were always. Listen, there's kids all over the world that take on responsibilities. There's kids, six year old kids working. <laughs> yeah, you know? So. <laughs> And, just and what it to, is. to this day, he I feel like he stresses everything out to the you know highest limit because he's been doing it since he was six years old. <laughs> You'll be all right. <laughs> and and we always used to tell him, Emmanuel, breathe. Because whenever he was he would try to explain himself about anything, he would stop breathing. He would just and we were like, Emmanuel, breathe. <laughs> <laughs> you hold his breath. <laughs> I was like, breathe, relax, relax, breathe, breathe. You know, you like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like my my poor son. But oh, we were listen. both in school. We were both working. We were both juggling our lives, trying to make it better for them. And you know it. And I remember when my daughter, you know, she cut school. She was 14, 13, 14 years old. She cut school. Now, once I heard she cut school, now I'm a madman. You know, now I'm looking for my daughter at each bus stop because she got on the bus. So trying to track her friends down, which bus stop she got off. I almost entered somebody's house and, you know, I, I was I was losing my mind. You know, so we act like a fool, you know, and then as soon as we found her. The release, but then we yeah. yelled at her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know I know that's what it was for the father. I knew that's what it was, Harry. You know, but I just, you know, when you when you're watching it, because we've all done it, I've done it, we've all done it. When you're watching it, you're like, I wish she would have just chilled out. Yeah. She was all tired. And she was crying and he could have just been softer. But I I I get it. I I, I understood it when it was happening. You know, because he yeah, freaked the, out and it was on his watch because he was responsible. Yeah, but, that definitely. Imagine that too. You only got him yeah. part-time and then something happens. Oh my God, you know? Yeah. So, but it's also, you know, we're parents, we're we're not perfect, we're learning all the time, you know. So it's like for me, I have a lot of regrets with my kids, but I learned from all of those regrets, right? So you but that's what you have to do in life is learn from every all of your mistakes. If you don't learn, that's when you, I think, you know, the judgment of you being an idiot, a bag person, or stuff like that. Because if you don't, if you don't learn. Then you 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 fell short not only for yourself but for your family for your children. You have to learn from everything you do. Well, in life. I think this was a good lesson for him because I think I this is what I this is how I know how this went down. The mother went wherever she was going. 
this was her weekend free or whatever, or how she was free. The dad is in charge. The dad's other daughter comes up from down south for this, you know, because it's down south is out, you know. She's probably got friends up here too. Yeah, but you expect, you expect your kids to be responsible, right? Well, 15, yeah. 15 to 11? Yeah. That 15 year old, you expect them. Well, that 15 year old probably is, is not tested. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, she's not tested yet. You know, yeah. you know what I mean, Harry? Like, just no, not yeah. tested. You just, has, he just made the assumption. No, yeah, it's, it has to be something you put you put them through the fire. You start with yeah. little things <laughs> and to get to the point where you go, hey, take her to New Haven and just roam around. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was untested and, and she failed. <laughs> she fa- so I, I'm sure she got an earful last night too if, if they didn't pack her bag and put her on the plane back to, back to wherever she came from. Because this could have went this could have went badly. I mean, this could have went badly. When my father had me for the summers, unwillingly, <laughs> I just used to show up on his doorstep and say, I'm here for the summer. But um <laughs> whenever we used to get in trouble, my you know, my brothers and I, he used to blame them. Now I'm the oldest in the group, but he refused to put any other responsibility on me. Again, you know, not taking responsibility, not allowing me to take responsibility. He was not doing his job. Right. So he would always blame me. He he would whoop on them and not touch me. Right. And I used to feel horrible. And I used to, I used to, I always push the envelope in my life. Always. I would get in his face and I say, hit me. Hit me. Don't hit, you know the the other one in line my you know my brother who was a year younger than me and he would just turn around and walk away from me you know and so it's hard to be the part-time dad and i saw it in him because he didn't know how to deal with me if he whooped me he felt like he was you know failing me or something i don't know i, I i'm guessing that but um, so you do blame the person that you're with all the time, closest, you know, the part time or probably that girl from wherever she, came, you know, his other daughter, you know, he was taking it out on the, the younger one because he doesn't know how to deal with Donald who's not there. You know, so it's, it's all of that stuff is hard. It's, that's why you, you got to try to be, you know, stick with your family. <laughs> <laughs> the kids are the most important thing you have in your life. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, we 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 know that and believe that, Harry. But a lot of people don't. Yeah, I mean, they home. don't arm these children. The fact that she couldn't, she didn't know nobody's phone number bothered but, me. But no you know end. what? Now I'm thinking to myself, I got to see what Bella knows and what's in her head. Yeah, because when she was with me, that was my routine. What's Papa's name? Papa. Nope. <laughs> yes, I'm your Papa, but what's, what's my, my name? Right. So she would, I taught her all of that, taught her our phone numbers, but now what is, what's in her head? She's the oldest. She's, she's 11. She has her phone too. And 
what you do is by giving them a phone early is you teach them to be lazy mentally, yeah. right? Because they don't have yeah. to remember anything. They don't have to remember names. But if that phone goes dead, yeah, and that child's phone was dead, like, hey, you know when it's like dead, dead? Like you got to plug it in and let it sit for a minute, you know, a good while so that it gets some use. Yeah. You know, and I and I can imagine the parents are, are trying to find her, right? So they're calling the phone, not thinking the phone is dead. So they're probably thinking, oh, my God, where's my child? I can't reach my child. Well, well also the sister, right? You have to think that the sister, once you realize you, the person you're responsible for isn't there anymore, you start <laughs> calling too. And you don't, you don't, you don't want to call your parents. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, she, somebody must have called the mother because the because the mother kept calling, right? Because you could see when I, I, when the phone finally juiced up, Harry, it was like a gazillion calls. Yeah, you know, I lost my youngest brother on the beach in Coney Island, right? We were fishing, we were fishing off the dock, and a storm came in. Right, it turned dark. It felt like you know the end of the world for us kids. So we took off and we're under the boardwalk. And when we look around, <laughs> the little one isn't there. Ooh. Right? So it's like, oh my God. Oh. We were terrified. My brother and I, we went back to the pier to look for him. And he's holding on to a pole. He's five years old and he looks like he's almost flying away with the storm. And he's holding on to a pole. And we were like, oh, my God. We grabbed him. And we were like, oh, my God. My father would have killed us. You know, but but it happens. You're in the, you're in a crowd. You're all trying to get to a certain place. And the little one well, this disappears. Little they girl take said her sister walked, like, her sister left her. I get it. She's 15. She with her friend. I I I see the of scenario. Of course. Of course. But also when you're the young one, you, you you know, we inherently have OCD, right? So we're like, we're looking at everything else. Your sister takes off. You should know your sister took off too. You know, but you probably roamed the way you were looking at something. It happens. It happens, and it's the most terrifying thing in the world. Oh, I know the when because as soon as the phone charged up, it was it started ringing. I was like, okay, this is they looking for, they looking for. But that child didn't know no numbers. I was like, <laughs> so, David Eric Sakar said, "I just quizzed my kid. He knows my number." <laughs> yeah. You have to. You have to. I think. I think. I think. You know what, Harry? That I think of all of the scenarios, two things that bothered me a great deal. Um, that that she wasn't trained. I mean, we were kind. We were kind people, and we we saw her in distress. You know, when when my kids were little, we we told them, and we used to tell them, always go look for. I never said look for a police officer. I always said, look. Look for a look like look for somebody who's a mommy. Or go into a store and ask somebody behind the register. You know, don't just walk up to random people. Be purposeful. Like just if you feel like you're lost or whatever, walk into a store or walk into a place 
or if you see somebody with kids, walk up to them. Don't just walk up to random people. And they, they'll tell you, we, we drilled this into them, you know, because mommies will help you. <laughs> somebody behind the register will help you. I say, like, don't necessarily walk up to somebody in uniform because that might not be the best option. You well, know. you know, we, we, you know, we used to, because we used to always take the bus here in New Haven. We used to travel everywhere on bus. So we used to tell them, go to the bus driver. Yes. Yeah. The bus driver will help you. you and, know. and they will, because I've seen bus drivers help children. Yeah. I've been on buses in my life where I've seen bus drivers like, okay, where are you trying to go? Okay. Right. <laughs> and then the, the other alternative was always, always look for a woman. Yeah. To go up to, because, and, and look, the truth is, is that I'm going to say about 90% of the people are good. Even the thug you see on the street that you think is a thug because it's all, you don't know who's a thug. You just be because of the way they're dressed. But that person might be the kindest person in the world. The problem is, is that 10% (laughs) that you're just so terrified of. That predatory 10%. (laughs) Yeah, that, that you're so terrified of. So, you know, that's why we would always say, Go to a woman, go to a woman, go to the bus driver. But I, I just think it's critical that if you could, if your kids know your name beyond mom and dad, yeah, pop pop or whatever, <laughs> and they know a phone number of someone, so that even if they run up on somebody, because somebody will say, can, can I call your parent? You know, yeah, you, so know- you got to know a number. And we did the same thing, right? So all of our numbers, it was one digit difference at yeah. the end of the number, right? So it would yeah. be like seven zero seven one seven two, like yeah. that. Yeah, that's how ours are. That's how yeah. my husband and I, we still and, have the same number. Yeah, and we, well, we all have the same number, except for my son, who just recently changed it. <laughs> and we were so upset with him. Why would now you change? Now we remember another number. <laughs> Now we have to remember another number. Now, you know, the girls, his nieces, all they had to do was learn a group of numbers. You know, now his number is some weird number. Say why he changed it? He just said when he changed services, he just, they told, they automatically gave him a new number and they didn't port his number. And he was like, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, to see, but now it does matter. When you bring it to his attention, be like, okay, this is a family number. We we have it programmed into our minds. Yeah. You know. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I would if I if I if I have any advice to any parent in this kind of situation, that you train your children to have a number, to know somebody's number that they can call in case of an emergency. Because cell phones die. Yeah, you know? and your name, your real name. And your name, your real name. <laughs> Your real name. Yeah, because at least they could look you up. You know, somebody could. Harry, look- we asked her what her father's name was. She only knew her father's nickname. Yeah, see, that's the thing. You have to make sure your kids know your name. And that, and that, and I was like, what? And then I was like, if that's all you ever hear, you know what I mean? If yeah. if if you come into the world, all you ever hear is your father's nickname. You don't know his name. It's like when you go to people's funeral, Harry. You go to people and their nickname is the only name you know. And then when you're at the funeral, you're like, his name was Rolando. What? Yeah. 
Yeah, you're like, what? Who's Jeffrey? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, that's his name? We, we, we knew him as Ray Ray. <laughs> <laughs> so she didn't know her father's name. That's she, true. We were like, what's his name? Because oh, I knew a she... lot of people who were like Ray Ray or Moo Moo or this. Yeah. Or and I would have never known their name. I would have never known their name, Harry. Yeah. I was like, man, I was like, okay, that's, that's a, so that, those are my two things. Make sure your children know your name, your full name, your government name, not your nickname or what they call you on the street <laughs> and, and a phone number uh, uh, that, that they know a phone number. So yeah. if they get, Although if you're in the right neighborhood, the nickname might help you. <laughs> well, yeah, if you're in the right neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I that so that's my that's our that's our story. But I listen, I'm just I I I slept restlessly last night because it bothered me so bad that uh I mean I was relieved that Ife and I were there. But I it you know, made well, me you know, you know, there's uh, certain things I don't believe are coincidence. That's why I say you guys were supposed to be there. Yeah. Um yeah. yeah. You know, I, I always think that to myself, you know, if I see a roaming child sometimes if i see elderly people like struggling and stuff going up like in waterbury going up i'll, I'll tell them can i help you with your groceries up just get in my car and most of the people most of the elderly would refuse me because yeah, they're afraid yeah and i'm like man but i see how they're struggling yeah. you know and I, I remember one day karen and i stopped and the old man snapped at us. Get over my side. We're like, all right, no problem. We just want, we, I said, we see you every day. We know where you live. You live in our complex. So he's like, get away from me. I'm like, all right, no problem. Plus he probably, he's probably trying to hold on to some independence too. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want your help because if yeah, I have to listen have to Love Bass Love Talk on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. And we gotta go take a break. Yeah, yeah I'll a... be back. I'll be back with Joan Duffy talking about uh, what's the the Beinecke talk today? So be back. All right, we'll be right back. Cue music. Is it music?
Linda. And you are listening. W N H H H L L P one one O O three point point five five F F M M New Haven New Haven Streaming Streaming Live Live at at www www dot dot New Haven Independent No Yay Yeah I can think of younger days when I lived for my life was everything a man could want to do. Welcome back to Love, Babs, Love, Talk on Babs, Girls, Ivy. Uh, I'm waiting for Joan Duffy to log in so we can talk about uh, her talk today at the Beinecke, uh, virtual talk through the Beinecke uh, around uh, the woman, the Black woman who left her life savings to the Yale Divinity School so that African-American men could be educated. And uh, it's a... Uh, 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 Reverend Jerry Streets is... Uh, is going to have her speak at Dixwell UCC, too, to talk about this, to spread the story about um, Mary Ann Goodman. Um, so I'm looking forward to having this conversation with uh, Joan. I don't know where she is. We, we shorted up the time, so maybe she's trying to log in from somewhere. <laughs> so hopefully, uh, uh, hopefully she'll be able to get on. And we could talk a little, we could talk about this. Uh, I, I love these kinds of extraordinary stories of people who, you know, uh, just leave these legacies for people to benefit from. So uh, so I'm looking forward to having her come on. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, yesterday was just such a, you know, a, a child in need, you know, I, it's a, it's a, it's one of those things that just stays with you in your spirit because, uh, you know, I, you, you know, you in those moments you just see how vulnerable our children are. You know what I mean? Like some real vulnerability there. You know, uh, gosh, you know, I'm just glad we were there. And you know, as I was coming back from break, you know, I'm sure that there would have been any number of people that would have been in this child's path to get her to safety. I, I, I'm sure. I, I like to believe that with my whole heart, you know, that, 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 that she was supposed to be fine. You know what I mean? Like that we were the, we were the first stop on that, on that trip. And, and if we weren't there, I dare say, there would have been other opportunities for her to get to safety. 
that's how I'm thinking about this now. Um, I can't, I'm not, I can't dwell in what if we weren't there. I just have to move toward believing that she was meant to be uh, uh, taken care of, cared for, and uh, and that that would have continued. That would have happened whether uh, we were there or not. That that's how I'm thinking about this kind of thing. You know, that's how I'm thinking about this, and uh, and that 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 feels better to me than than in the space of, gosh, what would have happened? So anyway. Oh, here's Joan now. I'm glad she she could make it. I can't wait to hear this story. I can't wait to hear how she knows this story. And I can't wait to hear what she's gonna do with this story, you know, and who else would be interested in this story. I'm look I'm looking forward to that. So, you know. Hey Joan, you have to unmute yourself and come in. Hello. Hi. How are you? It's good. It's great to see you, Babs. Nice to see you. How are you? Pretty good. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, I'm ready for this. Are you? <laughs> yes. Tell me the story. Tell, tell me the story. Tell me your connection to the story. Okay. Well, I, I don't want to give away the best of it which will be on today's webinar, Mondays at Beinecke from 4 to 5 p.m. Um, I sent you a QR code so that at the end, maybe you could show that and the, the viewers could um, snap that and uh, go right to the webinar, uh, go to the registration. But um, I, I started researching Mrs. Mary Ann Goodman uh, because I had so many requests for more information about her. Uh, she was an African-American woman who lived from 1804 to 1872. She was born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts and uh, her, her family was enumerated uh, among slaves in Pittsfield. Um, uh, she, uh, she was indentured when she became old enough to, to uh, take a job outside, uh, outside of her home. And uh, when she fulfilled that obligation, um, the family was was free and they moved to New Haven, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So um, a very interesting um, part of the story is that um, they, they live next door or very close by a family by the name of Day. And uh, Gad Day uh, was a builder. And, um, and so... Um, his sons were about 10 years younger than Mary Ann when she was growing up. Uh, they, uh, they may have been friends, but the families definitely knew each other and were friendly. Uh, they moved to New Haven at the, around the same time. And um, uh, throughout their lives, they, they had contact with each other. So there, there are many connections that um, 
I never anticipated, but it is, it's an incredible story. Uh, so the, the two uh, day boys, this was a white family, they came, went to Yale Divinity School. We now have a room in our library uh, that was um, funded by uh, George Edward Day. He gave the money and the books to start that library. And um, so Mrs. Goodman uh, really doesn't fit the mold of someone who would give a scholarship to Yale Divinity School, but she was a woman of faith. Her, uh, her family uh, belonged to the Congregational Church in Pittsfield. They uh, belong, when they moved to New Haven, they joined um, the College Street Congregational Church in New Haven, which is right where the College Street Music Hall is. And- um, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, that was a church. Uh, it burned oh. down in a tragic fire. Um, but yes, uh, that's right where it was. So there's very, a lot of special spots in New Haven uh, relating to this story. Many tangents that um, it's, it's little rabbit holes to go down with the people that she knew, but it is a story of, of real inspiration. Um, she, um, she uh, was, was a woman of faith, as I said, and uh, at that time, uh, Yale Divinity School and Yale University did not admit um, and matriculate people of color, men of color, because women, we weren't even at women yet. <laughs> so, um, uh, she she knew though that the time would come when it would be important for there, there to be educated ministers of color in the church. And some tried to, uh, to study at Yale Divinity School like James W.C. Pennington, who became the second at the second minister and the first black minister of the, the uh, Temple Street African Ecclesiastical Society, which is now still going strong as our Dixwell Avenue Congregational Church. So um, she, uh, she knew these people, she knew their stories. And so uh, through, through many twists and turns, um, she, she thought it was, um, it was important to see that, that uh, men of color could get an education for the ministry. And upon her death in 1872, she, um, the, her, her uh, complete uh, uh, bequest to the Yale Divinity School uh, amounted to $5,000. And that amounts in this day and age to over $121,000. So <laughs> it's, it, it was a, a very generous um, gift. Um, 
and and she um, it's it's said that she she forgot about her own burial and didn't put aside any money for her burial. Um, but I actually saw in her papers that she did have a plot in the new cemetery, which would not have been Grove Street where she's buried. The new cemetery at that point in time would have been the Evergreen Cemetery. And I even went poking around there and found where her father and her stepmother are wow. buried. And so the, those uh, connections also opened up other little micro stories. So um, she, uh, she had amongst her friends, um, people of both races, and she was much beloved. It's, it's obvious from, from the, um, the uh, uh, letters and other papers that, that I found. Um, she, she was much beloved by her neighbors and friends and uh, people in her church. Um, her father also. George Edward Day actually wrote obituaries for both of them, and he thought they were important enough that Pittsfield, Massachusetts, ought to know how things turned out after they moved to New Haven. And he said that uh, her maiden name was Brewster, by the way. So her father, Charles Brewster, um, she, uh, he, he was uh, described as such a wonderful gentleman, generous and kind and, and many other wonderful things. And, and the same uh, with, with um, Mrs. Goodman. She was married twice. She, uh, her first husband um, was named William Hopkins and uh, he passed away uh, unexpectedly in 1847. And um, he's supposed to be buried in Grove Street Cemetery, and though, though I could not find any record in the cemetery to prove that, but he is in a list of, of uh, burials for that, uh, that uh, year. And so that makes me happy that at least uh, she's, she's with a member of her family. Um, she's, she's buried in what they call the Yale section. And um, so, so she's, she's the greatest among them, I would say. <laughs> And she had um, children, Joan. Did did she have children? Were there children? No, she never she never had children, at least none that survived uh to the point at which I uh have found records of her. Um it may be that she married a little later in life because she was obligated to be indentured out to fulfill her her uh obligations and as as uh, a slave I hate to say but um, she uh, what the 
uh, one very important part of the story is um, the, the Reverend Simeon S. Jocelyn, who, who was the, the first um, minister of the uh, Temple Street African Ecclesiastical Society. Um, he, uh, he and his brother, Nathaniel Jocelyn, uh, who painted the beautiful portrait of Sinke from the Amistad ship, um, they, they uh, bought up land in um, parts of New Haven. So, uh, and, and it, they, they got help from uh, some more wealthy New Haven people like Thomas R. Trowbridge, who was in shipping. And uh, they, they were able to um, sell the land at, at quite a reduced rate. Uh, and it was not only an area for African-Americans, but it was to be a mixed community where people wanted to have their own businesses and, um, and have their own happy, harmonious community. The only thing they were not allowed was to consume ardent spirits, as they call them. <laughs> So um, those neighborhoods are still around today. Trowbridge Square, Jocelyn Square, Chatham Square. They were in several parts of the town. And, um, and so this is how the, the uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hopkins and later when he, when she remarried Bradley Goodman, um, they they had property, they had their own businesses. Mrs. Goodman was a washerwoman, and she uh, she took in um, uh, jobs from from the neighborhood and elsewhere. Um, her her uh, first husband um, was a joiner. Which, which was a job that he did uh, fancy carpentry work. Her second husband, Bradley Goodman, um, was, uh, was kind of a jack of all trades. When they met, he owned a grocery store, which is, is where Sally's Pizza parking lot is today. And he also had some business interests in New York City uh, and owned land there as well. So when he passed away, uh, also prematurely in 1851, um, again, Mrs. Goodman came into uh, his, his um, uh, property, his, his uh, finances and, and everything. And so, um, it, it was, it was an incredible story of success in many, many ways. And, um, people were, were helping each other, um, to succeed. And so you said they lived, where did they live in Trowbridge? They, Park? they lived, Square? they lived, they lived near Trowbridge Square. Mrs. Goodman, uh, and, and her husband's, uh, lived at uh, 115 Carlisle Street, one block and that, and it was, th that 
that address is not there anymore. Um, so it was described in the, the city directory as, as being near Howard Avenue. And one block down from there, the Reverend Simeon Jocelyn and his family lived at the corner of Putnam and Howard Avenue. So, um, so Jocelyn lived among the people that he was helping and serving in his church. Um, so it was, it was a, a mixed neighborhood of people who, who cared for each other and, and um, helped create a harmonious community. Wow. And so, <laughs> and so they went to uh, the Congregational Church which was mm -hmm. at that particular time downtown on College Street. Yes. Okay. Yes, it's amazing um, that there were a number of churches that sprung up um, from um, uh, they, they uh, many of the churches in New Haven would, would have what they called mission churches in different parts of town um, because people didn't have the transportation like like today, um, but it, um, it seemed like all of the churches that, that were springing up in, in the mid to late 1830s were, were mixed race churches. So something happened where there was, there was not that segregation. Um, the, the church that, uh, that Jocelyn was the first pastor of, um, and now Dixwell Avenue, that was founded specifically to be a church for African-Americans. But the, the church that, that Mrs. Goodman went to and her father and stepmother um, moved to a different part of town and, and they, they went uh, to the Howe Street Congregational Church. Um, okay. and yeah, there's a lot of congregational they, churches. <laughs> they were all over town. Um, the, there was a Park Street Church. There was a Church Street Church. Um, um, there was a Pilgrim Church. Um, and, but those, those churches all had mixed race um, uh, members. So uh, something, something good, I would say, happened that um, people were decided to live in harmony. They, they were not content to segregate people on the basis of race. Um, and I, I think that this is, is a, a very positive and inspirational story that is is not what we hear certainly not what we hear and people experience today and uh it's it's um i i have been very surprised and and happily so to um learn the things that i have learned mm -hmm. um Mrs. Goodman also had uh, had a friend who wrote a letter and said uh, he wrote after her death to uh, to 
Mr. Day and said, if, if you find among Mrs. Goodman's um, uh, possessions, uh, a picture of myself and my brothers when we were young, uh, I would like that back because it was the only copy. And uh, it was hard to read the signature, but I stuck with it and it turned out that it was A.C. Luca, L-U-C-A. So I, I hunted around to find the identity of Mr. Luca. It turns out that he was, he was one of four brothers, the sons of the uh, organist and choir director from the, the churches that, uh, that the Brewsters and Marianne uh, went to in New Haven. And they, um, they, became, they became famous performers, um, singers and musicians. Um, they, uh, they, they were known as the Luca family singers and they would perform at abolitionist um, meetings and at the time, there was uh, a white group, uh, a family uh, of um, uh, men and women, brothers and sisters, who were, they were the Hutchinson family, and they did the same thing. They were uh, performing at abolitionist um, meetings and using their music to, to um, spread the word and awareness that slavery was not a good thing it needed to end. And so the Hutchinsons invited the Lucas to travel with them. <laughs> and they were such a big hit. One of the Luca uh, boys, when they were, they started this when they were young, very young, and he was a boy soprano. Uh, when he grew up, uh, he, he turned into an amazing pianist. And he, of all of them, he, he got the most cheers whenever they performed. And later he went to Liberia and he, uh, he used the rest of his life um, teaching music in the new colony that was formed for African-Americans who wished to return to their homeland, though they may have been a few generations away from, from their homeland. Um, but uh, he, he uh, wound up writing the Liberian National Anthem, uh, composed the music and the lyrics were written by the president of Liberia. Wow, wow, this is such a New Haven connection. This is crazy. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, who knew that we had this amazingly talented singing group in, uh, in the early 1800s, um, right up through their adulthood when they, they moved to um, Zanesville, Ohio. Uh, some continued to perform. Um, unfortunately, the brother who 
who moved to Liberia, when he did come back to the States to, to see his family, uh, he had contracted um, a, a fever from Africa and, um, and he passed away from it. So that was right around the time when Mrs. Goodman also passed away. So, um, wow. So, so what was the most interesting, what was the most interesting thing about this? Like, how did you know to find this? Like, how did it fall into your <laughs> hands to like do this looking and digging? Well, that's why they call me Joan of Archives. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Joan of Archives. Uh, <laughs> love it. Well, we, we, um, Yale, of course, knew about Mrs. Goodman because she, she gave this uh, scholarship and her papers are archived with the uh, treasurer's, uh, Yale treasurer's papers um, at manuscripts and archives at Sterling Memorial Library. Um, and the, the uh, chief research archivist, Judith Ann Schiff, had researched her many years ago, but um, uh, it it was uh, it, it it was just that people wanted to know more about her than than just the the basic facts about the scholarship and um, and why she was. Um, buried in Grove Street Cemetery and why did she give all of her money and not even think of saving uh, some to bury herself. Um, and I would get questions all the time about that. So I knew there, there, had, there was a real woman behind the story. And so um, that the human part is what I wanted to sort of dig up, if you forgive me for using that. Uh, but uh, I, I tried to not leave any stone unturned. Um, I, I, I went to the cemeteries uh, looking for um, the family members. Uh, when I went to Evergreen Cemetery to find um, Mr. and Mrs. Brewster, um, there was just grass and in, in the space where they were. Well, I knew there had to be something under there. So I, I took a stick and, um, and I moved a little bit of the soil and sure enough, there was a stone so I was able to um, uncover that a bit. And then the folks at the cemetery uh, did, did a much better job of it. So now the, the stone is visible um, and I'm, I'm making sure that uh, all of this information will be accessible to people. Uh, I've asked to, to have the uh, treasurer's office papers relating to Mrs. Goodman uh, digitized and those will be um, put into the, to Yale's um, digital library, which is in development. Um, I'm, I'm uh, going to add all of the, um, the, 
the graves in find a grave and make the connections from the family members. Mary Ann's own mother named Mary passed away in 1834 in Pittsfield. So that that was uh, something that I learned only fairly recently. I don't, just because I, I write down the, the information and present it, it doesn't mean the research is over. I always keep my eye out for, for more uh, gems that might come up. So um, she, she is in the Pittsfield Cemetery and um, so I will make all those connections so that anyone can follow up for more information. So today you're having your virtual talk with the Beinecke, through the Beinecke, of the Beinecke, from the Beinecke. Today at what, four o'clock? Is, is this Mondays at the Beinecke? Mondays, Mondays at Beinecke, yes, from yes. four to almost 5 p.m. Yeah. Yes. And yours is a virtual talk so people can log in. I posted it up on our on our. Facebook page so it's Perfect. there so, so I've been sharing it and and connecting you to it and the Beinecke to it and just putting it up there so people can check it out so that's today oh and, and thank you Harry for putting it up Mondays ah. at the Beinecke so Mary <laughs> there Green it is with Joan Duffy so uh Joan of the archives okay <laughs> so that's today at four, four o'clock and uh and you can tune in and you can learn more about uh Marianne Goodman her life her legacy how she left in 1872, $5,000 is now like, you know, $100,000. Um, and it's still a scholarship. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Joan, for, for, uh, for just like sharing this wonderful, rich story um, for us, to us. I'm so glad I, I uh, reconnect. So Joan and I went to Church of the Redeemer together. So she is my church sister and forever will always be my church sister so I was just yes. so happy to first of all to see her and secondly to hear about this story so I was so glad that you could come on this morning to uh share a little bit so if anybody wants to know more about this wonderful story today at four o'clock she'll be on talking about this um just log in and register and do all the stuff you have to do virtually and then uh and she'll walk you through this wonderful story because I know there's way more richness to this story than what she shared this morning with us <laughs> you Joan it's so good to see you you too Babs Always. so feel free to contact me anytime you find more gems <laughs> okay sounds wonderful thank you so much for the this opportunity it has been an honor and I I hope to see you again soon yes Joan of the archives you shall soon. <laughs> thank you so much thank you <laughs> all right I'll be back tomorrow y'all have a nice day and go check out Joan of the Archives uh, at Beinecke today at four o'clock virtually. Hear more about Marianne Goodman. Uh, thank you, Harry Droz. <laughs>